You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit harvestyorkregion.ca. Welcome. Glad that you're here. Take your Bibles, please, if you would, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, specifically, we're going to look at verses 1 to 15 today, and and we're going to settle on this foundation, the foundation of grace, the things we just sung about, the marvelous, wonderful Savior's love for me, an expression of His grace, and how that lives and moves and has its being in us, in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in our church, and in the things we say and do and do not say and do not do. You know, there was a story you might be familiar with this. It was an overcast day in Florida. It was in the winter of 2013, two years ago. A man whose family had lived in the same house for generations suddenly lost his life when a sinkhole opened up beneath the home's foundation, causing the floor and the very house to collapse. And it simply swallowed up the entire house. And this man who was in bed in his room died. Experts say that there are parts in Florida where the limestone that lies beneath the earth's surface is slowly being eroded, being dissolved away as a result of acidic rain. And when enough of the bedrock is eaten away, it causes this void, a deficiency, a, a fault, as it were, in the structure. And the structure simply collapses under the weight of what is an inadequate foundation. And you see a picture of something like that right there. And the consequences are severe. So when we think about building something like a structure or an organization, a, a family, or even a church, it must begin with a foundation. The foundation is where we start. It's the beginning. It's the rock, the bedrock on which the structure subsides. It's unwavering. It's in, immovable. It's, it's, it's where the organization finds its very purpose or its family or the church. Crucial that we get this right because we mess up on this as we will see the ramifications can be severe. So I'm going to give you some context about this passage that we're looking into before we actually read the passage. Here, in this passage here, in this letter, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. Corinth is a large city in Greece just west of Athens. It's on a major trade route, was and is. It's where the temple of the sex goddess Aphrodite existed. It's a place where there was much diversity. Diversity in commerce and ideas and and in practice. The church was established during Paul's second missionary journey. And and it was a very gifted church. God used that. And and when you think about the, the, the place where this church was planted, it seems like it's the most likely place for the church to succeed. But ah, you see, this is what grace is. This is also a church, however, that experienced many conflicts. Conflicts due to jealousy, and that these, jealous, these jealous, jealousies were causing much divisions and factions and strife, and, and that often happens when we take grace for granted or we neglect it. So as I said, Paul writes this, his first of two known letters to the church at Corinth from Ephesus. It's where he's writing from. The church has been established about 18 months prior to this letter. He writes this letter to correct them. He receives word back about this 
This, this stuff has gone off the rails. What, what happened? What, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten grace? Have, have you neglected the foundation? He receives this letter. He must have been grieved. He must have been grieved, but he writes to recalibrate, to convince, to challenge them and us to keep focused on the true foundation, the foundation of grace. Jesus said this about the church in Ephesus in the Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. He said, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Please stand with me as we now take the opportunity to read from God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than which that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, Straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. Join me as we pray. Father, as we look at your word today, the eternal word that echoes throughout eternity, we pray that we would even somehow begin to plumb somewhat of the depths of the wisdom and the grace and the power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of this world, Lord, the the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who is the head of this church and the head of all churches. God, we pray now that we would see, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, the foundation of grace, that we wouldn't neglect it. Perhaps maybe we are or take it for granted, but come back to that and build our house on the foundation of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So please take your seats. Okay, we got to get this right, man. Like, you know, we, we miss on this, we're in big trouble, this whole thing, this foundation of grace. So let's look right here, look at the first Verse chapter 3, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He says, I couldn't consider you, I couldn't call you, I couldn't think of you as spiritual people, but look at this first act of graciousness. But I am considering you, and I am calling you my brothers. Look what he says, but I, brothers. 
He's being very gracious. Look, right there at first, an example for us, right there of grace. I, brothers, you're my brothers and my sisters. But, oh, you see, here's an aspect of grace. Grace is speaking truth and love. And he's about to lay it on us. He's about to lay it on them. He takes the next 14 verses and describes where they are. They've, they've forsaken, they've foregone, they've taken for granted this grace. And he says, I wish, how I wish I consider you, how I wish I could call you spiritual people, but you are of the flesh, you're of the world, you're infants in Christ. There's two kinds of people in the world, those who are saved and those who aren't. There's two kinds of people in the church, those who are mature, those who are immature. And that's who he has in mind here as he writes this letter to the church at Corinth. He calls them brothers. He said, I wish I could deal with you. I wish I could consider you as spiritual people, people led by the Holy Spirit, people who are immersed, saturated by grace, people who are indwelt with the word of God, but rather you are worldly. You have defaulted to worldly things. And, and as a result, what do we see? There's a lot of jealousy going on here. There's a lot of strife. Verse 2, he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food. I gave you the things of the word of God that you should easily digest, and you should by now move on to the deeper things, plums, the depth, even somewhat, somehow the depths of this magnitude of grace. But no, you're not. Look, he says, you weren't ready for it. You weren't. He says, now you're still not ready for it. How come? You've just demonstrated that you're still not ready for it. Verse 3, he says, you're still of the flesh. These next verses we're going to see. Two times he says, you're of the flesh, you're of the flesh, you're acting in a human way, you're acting in a human way. Two times he says flesh and human in these next two verses, for you're still of the flesh. While there is jealousy and strife among you, you see, you've demonstrated that. I'm not just making this up. Look, look, you're, you're working, you're living and moving and having your being out of the flesh. There's jealousy. There's strife. What's jealousy? It's this constant, incessant uh, thoughts and, and, and desire to compare myself with, with someone else or, or something else or someplace else. It's never good enough. I'm not content. It's that him or her or this thing or that thing or that place or, that or this place. I'm always comparing myself. And what does that have? It leads to strife. Because as I'm doing that, you're doing it too, and, and she is, and he is, and they are, and, and we're constantly, we're comparing, and, and it's not long before we've left the foundation, and we're, we're off, we're scattered, and we go, and we lose our unity and purpose, and strife, strife is not just a disagreement, it's a bitter disagreement that continues to bring faction and, and division. You see, we're supposed to be unified, he says here. You're still of the flesh, there's jealousy, there's strife, and you're behaving only in a human way, he says. Verse 4, for one says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? You follow Paul. I'm saying, you see, here's the, here's the comparison piece right here. Here's that jealousy. I follow Paul. You're following Apollos. Yeah, well, I follow Apollos. Follow Christ. Follow Christ. Paul even says that. Imitate me as I imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't follow me. Follow Christ. I'm an instrument. I'm an instrument of his grace leading you to Christ. 
You know, it's been my experience about guys like this still exists today. You know, there's, there's this guy. I follow this guy, and I follow that guy, and I'm all about this blogger, and, 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 you know, he's all about that blogger, and this radio minister, and that radio minister, and I'm all about that, man. I'm all fired up about that. The truth be known, it's not so much that I'm about that guy. I'm not so much about my guy. It's just that I'm not about your guy. Okay? So I just want to make that clear. Yeah, okay, yeah, I might be about this guy. But here, here's the most important thing. I'm not about your guy. I'm about my guy, yeah, but I'm not about your guy. You see? You see what happens? When jealousy begins to enter into the equation, we start comparing. Strife. He says, you're behaving in a human way. Aren't you being merely human? Yeah, but Paul, yeah, 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 human. Yeah, what do you mean? He says, you're just like acting like everybody else. That's what he says. When you're behaving in a human way, you're only being human. You're acting just like everybody else in the world out there. There's no difference. You've defaulted right back to that. We've drunk deep from the well of the world. Stop it. Defer to grace. Default to grace. You're only being human. You're just being like everybody else, he says. In verse 5, then he goes on to say, you see, that when the flesh happens, we have the factions. And now he's going to talk about the field. He's going to use this analogy, this example of a field. And remember, the whole purpose of a field is to produce fruit. It's not to Not to fight to have factions, to produce fruit. Look what he says in, in chapter, or verse 5. He says, uh, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? He's speaking in the first person about himself and his, and his friend. Apollos, we know Apollos was an evangelist. and a, He was an apologist. He was a church leader. He was a Jewish Christian. He was from Alexandria in Egypt. Paul, we know, was the apostle Paul. Now was the Pharisee Saul. And he was from Tarsus. In the province of Cilicia, in modern-day Turkey, there's a, there's a big distance separating Alexandria and Egypt from Turkey. So it's not like they grew up together. It's not like they knew each other growing up. But they did come together, and they do know each other. And the common bond of grace and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And, and we're, what is he, how does he describe himself and Apollos? One word. He uses one word to describe himself. And his friend, Apollos, servants. That's it. Servants. What are we? You say you follow this guy, that guy. We're just servants. We're, we're, we're willing slaves, bond slaves, as it were. Serving the master. That's all we are. Stop, stop saying you follow me and him and him. Follow Christ. He's the one who we serve. We're servants. And he says this. Look at this. This is incredible. Through whom you believed. We are servants. You came to know this expression of grace through our service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through our expression of his grace, you came to in grace, you came to understand or embrace this gift of grace. Through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. You see, the Lord assigned that to Paul and to Apollos. That was our assignment, he says. We're servants, and, and the master assigned us to go, to go to Corinth and and, and to speak about my grace and to talk about the gospel and to share the truth of Jesus Christ. That was our assignment. We went willingly, willingly, Lord. Not in our own strength, but in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say this about himself and Paul. He says, I, Paul, he says, I planted. Pretty simple, huh? That's all I did. I planted. I was like, you know, took the shovel and broke the ground. I planted. Apollos, he watered. Eh? No big deal, huh? I planted, Apollos watered. Look, but God gave 
the growth. As instruments of his grace, we were assigned to this task. Willingly we went, humbled by it. We were used of the Lord. You you came to faith and to embrace or to know something of this grace through our service to the master. But God is the one who gives, who gave, who gave, he says. Look, look in the next, gave, past tense. So neither he who plants nor he who waters only, but only God who gives, gave, gives. Past tense, gave, gives, continues, continues, continues to give the growth. It didn't stop. It continues. He gave and he gives. As we plant and as we water, he gave the growth. He gives the growth. I didn't do it. I didn't earn it. It's an expression of his grace. He gave and he gives. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Don't don't hold us up. Don't esteem us. Romans chapter 12, only the Apostle Paul says this, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. He says that in Romans chapter 12. He says, so neither, neither he who plants nor he who waters is any, anything, but only God who gives. He gave and he gives the growth. Verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. We're one and the same. No distinction. Remember, we're servants. Yeah, my task was different. I planted, he watered, but nothing in us that sets us apart. Nothing in him, nothing in you, nothing in me that sets us apart. There's nothing in there that God says, wow, look at this guy. Look at this girl. I better extend my grace upon them. How righteous they are. He says this about my righteousness and your righteousness is filthy rags. That's what he considers your righteousness, by the way. See, my righteousness doesn't lead me to grace. It's grace that leads me to righteousness. My holiness doesn't lead me to Christ. It's Christ who leads me to holiness. It's my being that leads to my doing. I don't do so that I can be. I be so that I can do. I'm not obedient to get more grace. I get more grace that I would be obedient. It's incredible. He who plants, he who waters, one and the same, each will receive his wages according to his labor. Paul, what are you talking about? You getting, you getting some big coin here? You put in some overtime, man? Like, what up? what's up with it? What's up with that? You got some wages? It's his reward. You know what his reward is? The assignment. That's his reward. I got to sign this. I get to be an expression of his grace. And remember, he's in Ephesus at this time. He's moved on. He's, he's continuing on the work of the Lord and the grace. His wages is the fact that he gets to be used to consider, to humbly, to humble himself that God would exalt him at the proper time. Paul says this about this, this concept of wages, you know, this reward for serving the Lord. He says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Listen to what he says here. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? What am I going to do? What am I going to say? How am I going to hope and boast before the Lord? I'm going to boast? Look what I did. How great I am. And I wrote two nice letters too, by the way. Lord, you owe me. He says, what is that? Are you kidding me? Look, is it not you, he says? He says this to the church at, in Thessalonica. Is it not you, you? For you are our glory and our joy. His reward, his wages is the fact 
that they have come to experience grace. No greater reward. It's not monetary. It's spiritual, and it has eternal ramifications. No greater reward. He says in verse 9, for we, we, Paul and Apollos, we, you, me, we're gods. Look what he says. Apostrophe S, possession. We're gods. I'm gods. You're gods. We're gods. We belong to the Lord. We're his servants. And he says we're gods, fellow workers. We're just fellow workers who belong to God. God's, God's the one who gives the growth. And he gave, and he gives, and he gives, and he gave, and he's the one who brings, and we're, we're just instruments in his hand. We belong to God. Paulus and I, we're just fellow workers. And he says, you, he's speaking to the church at Corinth, least you think and think of yourself too highly and puff yourself up. You, you are the field. That's all you are. You're, you're the field. You are the assignment. You're the field, and the field member is supposed to produce fruit, not factions, not fights. You're the field by which we were assigned. You're God's building. You are God's. You also belong to God. We're his fellow workers. You're the field that we came and cultivated and dug and poured and poured ourselves as an expression of his grace into you. So he's moving now. And look, look at this. He's going to move from this analogy of field and he's going to now bring this analogy of structure of building, and, and as, as a good building must, it has to have a foundation. It has to have a foundation, and this foundation that we're going to talk about, it's eternal, it's forever. Here it is, verse 10, maybe the most important verse, certainly in this chapter, if not in this whole letter. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given me, I... Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Okay, we got to stop right here. We better get this right. We better get this right. This seems to be like a focal point, a hinge. This is the big point right here. According to the great, according, because of, in agreement with, under the authority, in the authority of, the grace of God. Not anything he did. Remember, remember let's just do a bit of a history lesson. Saul of Tarsus persecuted the church, hated Christians, did everything he could to stop it, gave approval of the martyrdom of Stephen, which had a huge impact on his life, by the way, as we read through the book of Acts. He couldn't get that image out of his mind. He's on his way to Damascus. After Stephen's martyrdom, he's on his way to Damascus to get more Christians, those who are in the way, to bring them back to Jerusalem to at least imprison them. And if in so doing they, they meet the same fate as Stephen, so what? Let it be. He's serving the Lord, or so he thinks. And as he's on his way to Damascus, what happens? Boom! He's encountered with grace. The Lord Jesus Christ hits him. Down he goes. That's where you got to be. That's where you got to be when grace hits you. On your face. And now his life changes. He was persecuting the church. He says of himself, he was the chief among sinners. Breathing murderous threats. And now, now everything's changed. And according to this grace, Paul never ever got tired about expressing his incredible love for, his amazement of the grace of God. He never got tired of it. 
He says, according to this grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Paul, you some kind of carpenter? Now, nothing I ever saw indicates that he was you know, a carpenter. So this skill that he's speaking about and this competence, he's skilled, not unskilled. Master builder means pretty high, pretty highly competent. It's not out of him. It's not because of him. It's because of the grace. It's because of grace. Look what he says here. You can just uh, hear me on this. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and this, his grace towards me was not in vain. It's not a waste, he says. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. He's not taking credit for that. He said, it was the grace of God that is with me. His skill and his competence is as a result of the grace. It's the grace of God living, moving in him, through him to reach others. So what is this grace? We better get this right. How do, where do I begin? I was telling some of the guys in Jason's and Jason and the elders, I didn't even know where to be. How do you even begin to scratch the surface of the magnitude and speak about the grace of God? So here's an attempt, as feeble as it is, okay? Here's, here's an attempt to try and somehow capture the essence of grace. So we know grace and mercy, they're similar, they overlap, but there is a difference. Mercy, mercy is not getting what you deserve. You deserve this, the wrath of God, but God has withheld it. It's an incredible act of mercy. Grace, on the other hand, is, is getting, is receiving what I do not deserve. His unmerited, favorable Love that I don't deserve. None of us deserves it. And he lavishes us with this incredible grace. It's a gift. And the church is to be built on that foundation. Well, you know what? I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking, yeah, I've heard that before. Maybe some of you have heard that before. And it just doesn't seem to give justice. You know what I mean? It just doesn't seem to capture the entire essence of that. So, so let me tell you in an attempt, as feeble as it is, let me tell you what grace isn't. So maybe you can come to terms with what grace is, okay? Grace does not accumulate. Grace accommodates. Grace does not belittle or berate. Grace beckons. Grace does not dominate. It deliberates. Grace does not seduce you into doing something you don't want to do, but grace brings you in grace to the place of surrendering the things you are doing. Grace is the mystery that is to be magnified. Grace is the peace that calms the storm. Grace settles the strife, sets the pace, stays the course, and grace seals the deal forever. Forever. It truly is amazing, this gift of grace. Spurgeon, one of my heroes in the faith, Spurgeon, who was considered in his day accused in his day, believe it or not, of being a hyper-grace guy, that he wouldn't preach truth and grace or talk about sin. How ridiculous. You see, you will, you will find that whenever you, even as I stand here, and whatever you preach grace or whenever you talk about grace, you'll have that opposition. It's coming. It's coming because on one side of the equation is grace. On the other side of the equation, you know who's there? It's all the works-based guys, all the works-based people, all the legalists and the moralists and the Pharisees who stand up and applaud as you try your hardest to earn and to upkeep this grace. You can't do it. But they'll lead you that way if you let them. 
Spurgeon was accused of that himself. He said this. I love this quote. Grace, he says, puts its hands on the lips of the boasting mouth and shuts it once and for all. Amen. Grace puts its hands on the lips of the boasting mouth and shuts them once and for all. Amen. Well, okay, all right, Pastor, and I get that, man. Like, but, but, you know, we, we got to earn it, right? We got to do something, right? Well, you don't earn it, no. You don't earn it. You, you can't live up to it. But you live and move and have your being as a result of it. The Bible does say only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Is there kind of tension in here? Is there is a tension between grace and works? Is there, I'm stuck in the middle. What do I do? And there's no tension. There shouldn't be. Okay, with your fingers there, turn with me, please, to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Because this is very important. We've we, we got to get this down. Titus chapter 2. It's a, a number of books ahead. Paul sends this letter to Titus, young pastor, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. He speaks about this perceived tension between grace and works. There's no tension. None at all. Look, he nails it right here. Look at this. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Who's he talking about? Who is it that brings salvation? Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Once and for all, putting away any perceived tension between grace and works. There it is. God, grace, the grace of God has appeared. Jesus Christ has brought salvation. Training us. Training us. It's incredible. He says, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 now. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says that he's skilled, master builder. We talked about that's not of anything that he can do or earn. That's an expression of grace. He goes on to say, let each one take care how he builds upon this. You better take care. Take care how you build upon this foundation. It's not long before you, you, you neglect there. You take it for granted and, and you're starting to earn it. You're trying to or you're trying to live up to it. You better be careful. And then here he does. He says it again. Look, verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You see? No one can lay the foundation. It's already been laid. By who? By the only one who could. Jesus Christ. No one else can do it. You can't, you can't come up. You can't meet the criteria. No one else can do it. Jesus did it. He is grace. He is the foundation. He's Jesus. The foundation is grace. Grace is Christ. Christ is the foundation. The foundation is grace. They're one and the same. It's all the same. No one else can do it, he says. Listen to what Paul says. You don't have to turn there, but listen with me. In Galatians chapter 1, incredible book. Galatians is all about grace. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, the apostle Paul says this to the church there in Galatia. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel, 
Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. You see, grace was there before you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You draw your next breath. Your heart beats in your chest because of grace. It was there before you trusted Christ. Grace, grace led you through, brought you to salvation. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It is by grace that you have been saved. Now, grace, we, we come to that. Yes, we embrace it. Yes, we get that. Then somehow we set it aside and we say, but I'm going to have to earn my sanctification. Foolish, wrong. Grace saved you. Grace sanctifies you. Grace will take you home. And grace will be there forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You'll never understand the infinite wonder and amazement of grace. It will always be there. And because it's infinite, there will always be more of it to be had. Always. And I'm thinking about grace and, and, and oh my goodness, Lord, where do I begin? And, and thinking about the Gospels. And Jesus' incredible expression of grace over and over again. Two things, two stories really stood out for me. In Mark chapter 2, it's the story of the paralytic, right? You know the story? Paralyzed on the mat. His friends come in. They, they lower him through the ceiling, through the roof, right in front of Jesus. Paralyzed. There he is on the mat. And Jesus says of the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Go, pick up your mat and go. Incredible. Incredible act of grace. And then in John's gospel, chapter 8, oh my goodness, maybe the most incredible, for me anyway, incredible story and expression of God's grace. We see in that that the woman is caught in the act of adultery. Caught in the act of adultery. She didn't forget to, 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 to file her taxes. She didn't misload the stapler, okay? This is pretty severe. She's caught in the act of adultery, and here come, who, who, here are these guys, the works guys, the legalist guys, the Pharisees guys, and they're dragging her to Jesus, stones in their hand, ready to kill her, because that's what the law said. And as they bring her to Jesus, he's down on the ground, and he, with his finger, he's writing something in the dirt. We don't know exactly what he's writing, but it could be their names, Maybe it's even the sins that some of them have committed. But he's writing down, he's kneeling, he's writing down, the ground, and here they come. Stones in hand, and they say, they say, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law says that we are to stone her. What do you say? The most incredible act of grace. Calmly, he stands up, surveys the scene, and he says to them, okay, all right, I'm going to step back over here. He says, you who is without sin, you cast the first stone. Okay, I'm just going to step aside. Go right ahead. Can you imagine what's going through that woman's mind at that moment? I'm done. I'm done. This is it. It's finished. I am going to meet my fate right now. I'm going to die. But you see, grace is irresistible, even for them. Because it says in the scriptures that from the eldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones and they went away. You can't deal with, you cannot understand the magnitude of grace. And there is God Almighty with this woman caught in the act of adultery. And he saves her life as an expression of grace. And now it's just her 
And God, Jesus, looking into her eyes as she looks into his, is his eyes. She must have been sobbing, weeping, because you've got to understand, a moment ago she thought she was going to die. And he embraces her and he says this, woman, who is here, who is left here to condemn you? She must have looked around for a second just to make sure nobody's hiding over there or hiding in the bushes. Nobody's here. And she looks to him and she says, no one. No one. And then God Almighty, the eternal begotten Son of God, looks to her and he says this, neither do I. Neither do I. What gives me and you the right to condemn her or to condemn our brothers and sisters in Christ? Who gave us that opportunity? Who gave us that task? Is that what that says? No. Neither do I. Oh, does Jesus go on then to say, okay, sister, listen, man, that was a pretty big indiscretion. You're going to have to sit down now and take a pad and paper up maybe three or four pads, three or four different pens, because I'm going to give you a whole bunch of rules and regulations and things you're going to have. You're going to have to earn this now. So sit down. I'm going to order out dinner. This is going to be a while. Is that what he says? He doesn't say that. As Grace continues in this encounter, you know what he says to her? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. That's it. He doesn't have to give her a bunch of rules and regulations and lists and requirements and form and function and formality. If she understands even a portion of the grace that has just been extended to her, she will live and move and have her being out of the fullness of that expression of grace, out of the fullness of her love for the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus said this, He who has been forgiven little loves little. Do you know how much you've been forgiven? That woman, by the way, represents everyone in this room to some degree or another. And Jesus says, neither do I. Incredible. Verse 12, he goes on to say, for now, if anyone builds on the foundation, here's this is incredible. If anyone builds on this foundation of grace with with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Paul, why, why are you using that as an example? What are you trying to say? You should remember now he's, he's transitioned from this example, this illustration of the field. He's now talking about a structure. Structure to be built up has to start with a foundation. So he's trying in some way in that illustration to try and capture the essence somehow, some way of what grace is. And he's using the illustration of a structure. So he's thinking, what structure? What structure is there that would even somehow give justice to this thing called grace? I know. It's the temple. The incredible temple that took 46 years to construct. And it says, the Bible tells us, and history tells us that this temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was overlaid with gold and silver and precious stones. And when the, when the sun was just right and the sun hit the temple, it glimmered and it shimmered and it shone. And you could see it from miles away. It was an incredible thing to behold. So Paul's saying, you know, like like this foundation of grace, you know, when you build upon the foundation with more grace, you know what you're doing? You're, You're overlaying it with gold 
and silver and precious stones, these things that are eternal and forever and are to be a great value. That's what you're doing. But, but on, on the contrast, if you're taking the foundation and, and, and you're overlaying it with works and the things you have to earn and the things you have to do to, to, to upkeep and to, and to earn it, and he says, that's wood, hay, straw. It's temporary. It's not going to last. It has very little value. A little bit, but very little value. So he uses that as the analogy. Then he comes on to verse 13, and he says, Each one's work will become manifest, will be known, will be evident for the day. There it is, day, capital D. The days are sitting right here, by the way, Kevin and Tina and all. God bless you. That's them, Kevin and Tina Day. That's not, this is not about them, by the way. For the day, capital D, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. What's he talking about here? It's inspection time. It's inspection time. He's talking about the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, where every Christian will be judged. Yes, according to their works. Yes, according to the things they did as an expression of grace. The things that you work for Christ. Yes, but the only work for Christ that has any value is the things you do in Christ. In Christ. Not for him, in Christ. The things you do for Christ of eternal value are the things you do in Christ. As an expression of his grace. And he says on that day, capital D, on that day, the, 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 the fire. What's the fire? The fire is, it's, it's certainly a finale. It's finished. The fire is the day of judgment. The fire is a metaphor for judgment. Because one thing about grace, intentional, absolutely, but it's intense. It's intense, and that fire on that day will disclose. Disclosing mean the things that were unknown will now become known. The, and it will reveal the things that were hidden will no longer be hidden, be revealed. You can't hide it. You can't, you can't pretend anymore. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. The testing, it's coming. Inspection day is not far away. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, the gold, silver, precious stone survives the day because it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, survives, what will happen? You'll receive a reward. Incredible. There are rewards in heaven. For us, don't forego them by neglecting grace and defaulting to works. You will have lost them. He will receive reward. Verse 15, look at this, another expression of grace. Look at this. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. It starts with a graciousness when he says to them, brothers, I wish I could address you as spiritual people. Brother, what a gracious act. And it ends in, chapter, in verse 15 with another expression of graciousness. When God says, you will be saved, but barely. Barely, he says, he says you, your works will be burned up. The builder will be saved, but as someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Picture that. I don't want that happening to me. I don't want that happening to you. May it not be. So that's, what do I do? You know, even asking that question reflects my heart, right? You know, many of you, I've had this discussion with many of you in the foyer in the last couple of weeks. Well, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? We're right back to the things I got to do. Well, yeah, there is, there is, there is implications for how I live. Absolutely. There's consequences if I disregard this. 
But again, as I alluded to earlier, Mark, excuse me, in James chapter 4, God says, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There you go. God opposes the proud. He's in opposition. That's a contest I'm not going to win. I don't want to be in opposition to God. In my pride and arrogance, that's exactly what I'm doing. But he gives grace to the humble. Incredible. Listen to this, Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and at the proper time, he will exalt you. You can't earn it. You can't live up to it. I'm tired of trying. I'm tired of trying to do this. I want to be. I don't want to do. I want to be. The four things I pray for, for myself, for my family, for us as a church, and I should share this with you. Do with it as you see fit. The four things I pray. Number one, incline my thoughts to your thoughts. God, that you would keep me humble. Look at this, right in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the very last verse says, but we have the mind of Christ. My thoughts, inclined in unison with your thoughts, God, to some way, to some degree. And even if I, even if I attempt that, I'm going to be so humbled by that. Next, I pray, open my eyes that I may see graces everywhere. And when I open up God's word and I read God's word, I'm looking for it. The word may not exist, but I circle and I put the grace. There's an example. The grace, there's another example. And then when I look around everywhere I go, God will give me opportunities to extend his grace. It's everywhere. Open my eyes that I may have spiritual eyes to see. Next thing I pray, I say, God, unite my heart with yours. My emotions, my heart with yours. That I would revere your name reverence your name. I, I'm not, I don't need to fear God in the sense that of reprisals. I bring consequences on myself if I disobey, to be sure. But he's not standing up there in heaven with a big switch saying, oh man, I can't wait till you step out of line. Here it comes, here it comes. He died for me. He died for me. But I want my heart united with his that, yes, I do fear this, that the things I do and say and do not do and do not say would bring reproach upon my Savior. I don't want that. I fear that, absolutely. My conduct, like is the case here, is the conduct of the people of the world rather than people of the Spirit who have the Spirit of God indwelt in me. Yeah. Yeah, I I better take note of that. And then lastly, I say, God, please satisfy me with your steadfast love with your grace, that the world and all the world has to offer would, 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 just, would, would, would have no sway in my heart. I don't want it. I'm seduced by it. It's everywhere. It's not long before I, I whoa, man, how did I get here? And we could do it here too. You can become seduced. No, I don't want that. I want to be satisfied with your steadfast love. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 16, the word of God says, and from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace upon grace 
upon grace, it never ends. It's infinite. In closing, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Haunting words. I love this. Haunting in a good way. Listen to this. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I've done the heavy lifting. I am doing the heavy lifting. You cannot come as an expression of grace. Join me as we close now in a word of prayer. Father, as we close our time now, this portion of our service, Lord, and we think about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. How often, Lord, it is, in, I know in my heart, that I can take that for granted, move on now, somehow to, to just, in my own mind, to think, well, I can help you out on this, Lord. I know you're busy over there, and you're busy with that guy, and so I'll take care of this part. How foolish. How, how, how silly, and how, how, how simple-minded that is, Lord. Forgive me, God, as I repent and confess of that on my own behalf, Lord, please. Now, as we engage and we apportion even a small part of your grace, Lord, expand our hearts and our minds to hear and see and understand, Lord, to live and move and have our being in the grace. That my holiness doesn't bring me to Christ. It's Christ who brings me to holiness. It's being that causes my doing. All for your glory, Lord. All as an expression of your amazing grace. Oh, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.